0: Hi again, everyone. This is Mark Mofsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University in New York. And I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, the center's other co-director, Mark DiGirolami, for an episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org. And also on streaming platforms like uh, Spotify and Apple iTunes and Android. So this is our first uh, podcast of the year 2023. Mark, Happy New Year to you.
1: Happy New Year, Mark. I'm very excited about this podcast.
0: I am too, because we're starting off the year with a guest, a special guest, Professor Nicholas Aroni of the University of Queensland School of Law in Australia. Also, I think, Nick, we're going to talk to you in a second. You have also an affiliation at Emory at that great law and religion center down in Atlanta. Uh, And Professor Aroni is one of the editors of a great new book called Christianity and Constitutionalism. This is a series of essays on various topics involving Christianity and Constitutionalism. Professor Aroni co-edited this volume with Professor Ian Lee. It's just appeared from Oxford University Press, I think in December, right, Nick? Yes. Yes, in December. So we're going to go through several issues here. There, of course, this is a a huge topic. We we can't discuss everything in the book, but we'll discuss some of the more salient topics, at least what Mark and I saw are more salient topics. So um, with that, Mark, let me turn it over to you and you can introduce our guest a little more. Say hello and and start our questioning.
1: Okay. well, great. Well, first of all, uh, Nick, let me just welcome you again uh, uh, to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Nick is, of course, uh, talking to us from Australia, so he's a he's a day ahead. We've 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 uh, matched up our time zones and we are we are ready to go. So maybe you could start, Nick, just by describing what the book is about and how it's structured, the kind of material that it covers and how you and 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 Ian kind of decided to put this together.
2: Well, thanks again, Mark and Mark, for the opportunity to be here on the podcast. It's uh, it's great to be able to talk about the book and uh, to talk with you remotely from such a distance. Look, when we came to tackle this question of how do you put together a book that addresses questions of Christianity and constitutionalism, it occurred to us that because there are so many dimensions to the issue, you've got to break it up into its component parts. And the design that we came up with was to divide the book into three main divisions. The first division tackles the question from a historical point of view. The second division tackles the issues from legal points of view. And the third division tackles the questions from theological points of view. So as far as the history is concerned, we felt that it was important that that the reader was introduced to the historical interaction between Christianity, Christian faith and practice, and constitutionalism understood fairly broadly to encompass the interaction between, as it were, politics and law and constitutional law as we now know it, uh, that sort of mixture um, as that evolved and developed uh, over time since the birth of Christianity, uh, even placing it into the context of what was there before Christianity. Uh, as well. And so we uh, asked uh, specialist authors with expertise um, on particular periods of time, as it were, to to write um, about the influence of Christianity on those matters at particular eras and times. so we we in fact also uh, had therefore two people talk about the Old Testament background as well as the New Testament background as foundational uh, essays. And then looked at um, the early patristic era, the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and what we call modernity as well. And so we tried to track it in those large periodizations. And of course, in the compass of, uh, of a book, as detailed as we wanted it to be, we still had to be fairly broad brush in those topics.
1: So, Nick, when you say when you say constitutionalism, I take it then just in terms of the with respect to what you just said, you mean it, as you say, in a in a broad sense, not so much, you know, in, in the United States, I think probably our listeners, they hear Constitution and they think, you know, the written document that, uh, you know, the forms the sort of foundation of of government. And so and obviously other countries don't have. Don't have written constitutions, but they have constitutions as a kind of formal or informal legal document that organizes things. But I take it. You mean constitution in a kind of a broader Aristotelian sense and in in almost in the sense of polity or political organization or something like that. The, The relationship of Christianity to the fundamental way that any political entity is organized. Is that probably is
2: that fair to say? Yeah, I think that is, Mark. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that we wanted the book to be global in scope and we wanted it to be historical in scope. Uh, So to be global, it meant what what does something like constitutionalism mean, not just in, say, Western liberal democracies, but in other countries? And secondly, what does it mean or what did it mean? What could it have meant, not just now in modernity or late modernity, but in other periods of time, because the topic is Christianity and this um, thing we might call constitutionalism. And, of course, Christianity is more than 2,000 years old now and has its deep roots in the Hebrew Bible, which go back even more thousands of years. So that's part of the reason why we wanted to adopt that approach. Um, We wanted the book, of course, to embrace modern constitutionalism uh, and the idea of a written constitution, which, of course, has now covered the globe and most countries do have written constitutions uh, but there are some countries that don't and then secondly those written constitutions of course operate within the context of what might be regarded as the larger cultural political legal constitution that is, is more encompassing than the written constitution itself so it's those sorts of combinations of reasons that brought us to approach it that way Um, I suppose another reason for it is that the book was intended to um, have a twofold quality, one that would be talking about the extent to which Christianity contributed to the development of what we know as constitutionalism in its various forms. Uh, And secondly, though, Christianity's critical engagement with that And so by placing, by adopting a wider definition of constitutionalism itself and by enlarging the historical and global perspective, it made it possible for the book to also have a critical perspective on modern constitutionalism uh, as well. Uh, So that's part of the reason why we approached it that way.
0: Yeah, I should say also for our listeners that um, that your book is it it treats Christianity, as I understand it, mostly as an empirical thing. It's not a devotional book. It's not it's not a book that tries to understand government in the sense of a prayer life or something like this. It really is more uh, seeing Christianity as a kind of social and intellectual and and political uh, force. Is that about
2: right, Nick? I think that's true, uh, as well as a, an institutional, and perhaps that's what you're getting at, Mark, as, a, as an institution, or as, but also as a community uh, of, of and a fellowship, as it were. Um, I, I think that it has those dimensions. Also uh, as a body of doctrine as well, um, which really brings me back to the structure of the book because I mentioned that there were two other um, major divisions of the book, and if I just leap to the third one just to get to that point... That's part of the reason why the final section of the book was about um, theology, is that we wanted Christian theology to be brought to bear to the issues of constitutional law and constitutionalism and governance. And we thought that the best way to divide that was to let theology itself determine the categories. And so our vision was that we'd have chapters in all of the major loci of theology, um, so the doctrine of God and the Trinity, for example, or the doctrine of Christ and his natures or soteriology and salvation or of the church as an entity um, or of um, eschatology in times as well. Uh, and, and it was in our minds that it would be those latter chapters that would probably tend to be the more critical in the sense of placing constitutional law under a theological microscope. Uh, even though those chapters do also talk about the positive contribution of Christianity in some respects as well, and the other chapters in other sections of the book have both characteristics as well, we we gave our authors a lot of license as to what they had to say and uh, the approaches that they took um, because we wanted that sense of of variety as well. I could. Couldn't, I uh, sorry, ma'am.
0: No, thank you. I was going to say, thank That's helpful. It's a helpful corrective uh, for, our, stu-
2: for our, our listeners. So in the middle section of the book takes a legal perspective, and it's there that we allow the categories of law to, to shape or set the agenda. And so we asked ourselves, what are the big ideas in constitutionalism um, understood in a more contemporary way? And so we wanted a chapter on democracy, on sovereignty, on the separation of powers, on federalism. Those sorts of big constitutional ideas that shape the way constitutional lawyers think about the Constitution in a structural or schematic way. And we generally wanted uh, competent lawyers who were leaders in their field to write those chapters. And it's at this point, as well as with all the other chapters, that another characteristic was that we wanted the book to be ecumenical and broad in its outlook and diverse, so when it came to ideas about, say, democracy or freedoms and rights, we knew that, you know, on certain accounts, there's a certain tension between principles of democracy and majority rule on one hand and rights and individual rights or minority rights on the other. And we, we picked people to write on those topics that we knew to have views that were on one hand either you know, tended to favor the democratic approach or tended to favor maybe the rights oriented approach, so that we brought those different perspectives into communion with each other. Uh, but we also want, because it's a book about Christianity and constitutionalism, you know, we wanted the authors to themselves be Christian um, and to tackle that topic in a Christian way and even reflect on, you know, what they thought about these matters uh, in their scholarship using that that Christian faith lens uh, in the way that they tackled the problem.
1: Nick, maybe I could ask you about something um, in, your, in your introduction, um, where you talk a little bit about Augustine. And Augustine is an important, obviously an important figure generally, but is an important figure for our center, because um, we have a regular reading society, a reading group for our students. And one of the books that we, or one of the pieces of, of books that we've tackled is Augustine's City of God. And, and we found him to be a, a very uh, important and interesting and provocative thinker, particularly for lawyers and future lawyers to discuss. So you, you make Augustine a kind of central figure in your introduction, a sort of launching point for the book in, in a certain sense. And in particular, you talk about the way that uh, Christians saw law or interacted with law and the Roman View of law, and then particularly the distinction between uh, natural law as higher law or divine law, and human positive law um, that begins to take shape in Christianity with an obligation of rulers to follow and be bound by uh, the natural law in their in their political activities, and of course that. Conception, I'm sure, has has a powerful influence for some of the later Christian thinkers that you that you discuss, that you discuss. But maybe you could just give readers a sense of that framing in the introduction between the kind of the the Roman view of the law, of law the the that preceded the Christian period and 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 how that influences the sort of trajectory of the book more broadly.
2: Yeah, sure, Mark. I, well, one of the things we wanted to do was for the book to have. A historical integrity about it. And so while the subject matter of the book is about Christianity and constitutionalism, it's not our thesis that constitutionalism exists only because of Christianity or that Christianity is the only influence on it. And so in reflecting on how we understand constitutionalism, even in a contemporary sense today, it has certain fundamental assumptions, it seems to me. Uh, one of them would be, what we call the rule of law. And I appreciate that that's something of a contested concept, but it also, I think, has a reasonably shared understanding that we're talking about the idea that uh, government authority is under and subject to law and its its powers and authorities are given by law and they're accountable to the law. Um, So there's this sense in which, therefore, there is higher levels of law and lower levels of law that emanate from those governmental authorities. And that, that idea, where did why do we have that idea of layers of law? Where did that come from? And I think that um, it has to be um, acknowledged and affirmed that to an extent it's Roman law and Roman legal practices that gave us something of a concept of jurisdiction, at least in the modern West, uh, because that whole concept, you know, so many of our legal lang- language is in fact Latin. I mean, a jurisdiction, which is essentially what we're talking about here is from a, a Latin word juristicio so it, it, and it and so what we wanted to acknowledge was the extent to which in the organization of the Roman empire and under Roman law uh, there were concepts of legality and the legal definition of authority and power that were a background factor but what we also then wanted to ask in that context what contribution did christianity make to that Uh, And look, one of the things I actually do, we don't go into detail in the book, but occurs to me when we think of Roman law is it's probably important to think that I'm no specialist on the topic, but my understanding of it is that it evolved quite considerably over time. And what you would say is Roman law during the time of the early kings, or then later the Republic, or then the Principate after Augustus, or then what the old historians used to call the dominant under um, Diocletian, very different animals. And so while you know during the Republic and even the Principate, you have this degree of constitutional order that even Augustus might be the de facto ruler of all, he really is seen as a servant of the Republic somehow and the forms of the Republic continue and define power as it were, but the de facto power goes beyond that. By the time of Diocletian, I think that sort of thinking is falling quite into the background. And the personal authority of the emperor as even divinely ordained power comes to the fore, and a concept of limits on the jurisdiction of that emperor have have melted away, I think, increasingly. I mean, that's my my sense of it as a non-specialist. So what was it that really brought constitutional law back into the frame? Um, Our account of it is that Christianity was a very important influence here because... It took concepts of natural law that had been circulating in Greek thinking and in Roman thinking and gave a a firm theological and philosophical foundation for it in the concept that we have a divine creator who uh, governs the law providentially through his eternal law. That was a phrase that Augustine himself used. And that eternal law governs all authority within a society. God has given a revealed law in the the scriptures. There is also a natural law that human beings can apprehend by their reason. And so that when when, uh, governance occurs, uh, human beings should properly govern in accordance with and in the light of what is known of that eternal law and they're subject to it. And so kings and princes from the time of Constantine onwards, and especially probably some centuries later, the practice developed that Um, For a king to become a ruler within a Christian context, they had to take an oath. And this oath was an acknowledgement of their their subjecthood to God or to Christ and their responsibility to rule with justice under the laws and customs of the realm. Um, And some wonderful studies have been done on the history of, say, English kingship right from um, the earliest historical records on the coronation oath that was required of English kings, which was very specific about this idea that the king is under law and under rule. And it seems to me that that's a very fundamental basis for modern, maybe Anglo-Saxon, conceptions of the rule of law and therefore of constitutionalism. It's a complex picture. There's many more elements to the story than what I've outlined, but in a sense that covers some of the core ideas, I think, that we're trying to convey. Um, And just coming back to Augustine, you know, one of the other really central important factors here is this idea of two cities that Augustine is articulating in the city of God, a city of the earth or of man and a city of God and heaven. And this concept of two cities um, creates a duality fundamentally in the, the mind, thought or structure of um, the society over time. And I, it seems to me that the institution of the church as distinct from the state, claiming jurisdiction distinct from the state. Um, helps to make concrete what might have been just theoretical. So Christianity might have offered, in a sense, a a theological or philosophical reason to believe in a natural law that binds the ruler. But how is that made concrete and specific? Well, it's when you have an institution which at a certain level is challenging the authority of what we might call the state um, at any one time, which therefore forces the state to be seen as a as a form of government with a limited jurisdiction, because there is also the church with its jurisdiction alongside it. Uh, and this, and- Nick, this, Nick, helps to explain all of the sorts of ideas that you
1: were talking about before, not only, of course, church-state separation, but uh, things like federalism, things like uh, separation of powers, right, All the the notion that that power requires or demands is, is necessary for it to be fragmented in some ways, yeah, uh, so that people are competing with one another
0: and so on. So, Nick, I wanted to ask a question. Uh, as I read this, um, your book is is really focusing mostly on how this idea of separation is instituted in the Western context, and that's that's perfectly appropriate. I mean, even the Western context, as you point out, goes for thousands of years. And so you can't really cover a whole lot. But of course, Christianity is not only a a religion that extends through time, it's a religion that extends across cultures as well. And so I wonder if you could just address that. Why why have you limited yourself in this book to Western Christianity specifically?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. Um, Look, interestingly, it was never our intention to be limited in that way. In fact, it was probably our ambition to be global, as I said before. But there are always just constraints on what can be done in a single volume. I think the fact that it was a volume published in English gave it that natural bias that, you know, when you construct an edited collection, you can design it as best you can so that it achieves certain objectives. But you also then want to get the best authors you can. And when you go for the best authors, you can't avoid the characteristics of those authors and the inclinations of those authors and so forth. And if you're needing people who can write very well in English, it just gives a bias towards English speaking. And in that sense, Western um, material. Um, I think there could be a second companion volume, (laughs) frankly, that was uh, more globally oriented. It's almost like if you think of the historical chapters, we have a chapter on Constantine. Now, uh, which I think is superb by Peter Lighthart. And it's almost like that's the port point of the fork in the road historically because there could then have been a chapter. We could have, like David um, Koizis, is it, has done some really interesting work on the political theology of, of, of Russian um, thinking, you know, and it, we, you could easily have had a chapter on that, which I think would have been really interesting. We just couldn't fit it in. Um, and then... I think that it'd be very interesting to look at how is this manifested, say, in Africa or in the Asia-Pacific or in South America specifically? I mean, we do have some chapters, you know, written by, you know, a South American scholar and a Singaporean scholar. But, like, another example would be, well, what about the Pacific Islands? Like, they are fascinating societies where their constitutions are permeated by Christian ideas. Um, So I, I think that it's... In one sense it's a very valid observation to make that the book has a western anglo-saxon almost um, orientation um and i think that it could be well supplemented by you know a second volume <laughs> that went into a more glo- an even further global perspective i think that would be terrific i'd love to do it we'll we'll have you on for a for a second podcast for, for that next
1: <laughs> but i wanted to i wanted to ask you a, a, another question about um a general sort of question about scholarship in law and theology and in particular in political theological accounts because i've noticed and i've been lucky enough to just um, have correspondence with them there's a there's a particular interest or expertise that seems to me but i'm i'm coming from the outside so i'm interested in your perspective seems to me de- developing in australia um, that that really a number of scholars Joel Harrison Alex Deegan Neil Foster yourself and there are many others I th- I think that I'm I'm missing now and I apologize to them but I think it's a real it's a lovely thing it's a real strength um, and the question I have is do, do you think a that there's a need to integrate these disciplines a little bit more for more study about about uh, about this you know historically. Um, the effort in in liberal politics and scholarship has been to kind of separate these and and study them as distinctive phenomena, but it seems to me that perhaps we're we're seeing something of a post liberal moment in uh, in and I mean that purely in a sort of descriptive way, in the sense that these fields are are coming together more, and in particular in Australia. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that sort of cluster of of uh, uh, observations.
2: Look, I think that's definitely the case, Mark. There's a wonderful circle of scholars that have uh, emerging here in Australia that I I work with and have encouraged uh, who are doing exactly what you said, thinking about these matters from a theological perspective, thinking about it from a post-liberal perspective in the specific sense in which you used it. Uh, and, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful development and I've got some graduate students who are doing the same thing who you haven't heard of yet but I hope you will really soon. So I, I do think definitely there's an emerging um, movement there and uh, we've got a conference in February actually in Adelaide where we're gathering together to present papers that are tackling these sorts of questions after having done one um, the year before COVID. So uh, it's pre and post COVID these days, isn't it? So uh, so yes, definitely the case, and I think it's because I, I personally have always been of the view that uh, that theological, theology is inseparable from philosophy and politics in a sense. It's, I, I, I don't altogether buy the idea of the separation of um, religion from politics in the way that people attempt to do so, and uh, you know that movement in Australia is is very much um, you know some some of the people like say Alex Deegan or um, Joel Harrison draw very deeply on someone like John Milbank who is a you know obviously a a critic of that but others might be drawing on um, other voices like Oliver O'Donovan or other political theologians who have broken new ground in this area Uh, um, you know even Alistair McIntyre in his own way you know I've got a PhD student who's just done a PhD on that so there's um there is this emergence, I think, in our country of work like that. But we're also inspired by what we're seeing uh, in the United States, in Canada, in England. Australia is a country like that because we, we, constitutionally, we've drawn on England and we've drawn on some US ideas in our constitution and it makes us always comparative in our outlook, uh, perhaps in a way that's not as um, inherent in, in other countries because of the very hybrid nature of our constitution. Um, and, um, and I think that's part of the reason for that. So yeah, I think there is a movement of that nature. It's an exciting development, I think.
0: Well, great. Well, well, thank you very much, Nick. This has been a really interesting conversation. I, I look to hearing, I look forward to hearing more about the Australian School. Maybe Mark and I can get down there at some point and see it for ourselves. That would be a lot of fun or get you here. That'd be nice. We'd love too. To have you. Uh, but meanwhile, let, let me say thank you again, Nick, for, for joining us today and discussing this book. It really is a wonderful book. Hope it gets cited a lot. We'll do our best to push it. Um, and, and thanks for coming. We hope you have you again sometime. Uh, meanwhile, this has been another episode of Legal Spirits. And so, for my friend and colleague Mark DiGerolli and myself, let me say goodbye for now and see you next time.